welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast. It's filmic adaptations and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. All right. And we are back for another episode. We are now firmly into 2019. And we are talking about Scott Pilgrim. Scott Pilgrim, the comic book series, and the film. It's been adapted in a ton of other places. Like, there's a video game, and there's an animated short, and there's something called a mobile comic. None of which we'll talk about, but this thing is probably the biggest, like, juggernaut we've talked about so far. Oh, no pressure. (laughs) Do you have news to start us off? I always start news. I feel like I should give you the torch. Which is hilarious because I was just realizing, oh, wow, I failed the homework assignment yet again. (laughs) Why don't you start us off? I will do some web searching and then you can come back to me. You are totally Googling your homework in class. You are my students. Okay, well, mine is, uh, I only have one this week and I wanted to talk about the fact that I just finished watching the second season of Atypical. Oh, yeah. Okay. Which is not an adaptation, but it is a YA property. Mm Mm-hmm. I want to mention it because, I mean, we talk about representation here and different kinds of representation in media. And I think Atypical is an interesting example of text that is trying to get it right and um, isn't. Yeah, (laughs) that's what I've heard about it. So, and I have to say up front that on an uncritical level, I enjoy the show. I enjoy it very much the same way I really enjoyed United States of Terra. Did you watch that, Joe? I did, and I really liked it. I did too, and it was one of those things where when you actually talk to people who have dissociative identity disorder, many of them, not fans. No. <laughs> the program. But from a viewing experience, there's really great performances, there's a family dynamic that's really, really interesting, and so you're straddling this line between representation that is not authentic to the experience of people who live it but the piece of entertainment entertainment that's created is like it's entertaining right and so i'm having the same experience with atypical which is interesting because one of the characters one of the actors recurs the son from united states of terra plays the main character Mm -hmm. in atypical keir gilchrist i quite like him actually as an actor he's a good actor yeah yeah and i'm looking forward maybe to eventually doing uh, it's kind of a funny story on the podcast which is a a ya novel about spending time in a mental institution and he plays the main character so funny that you say that (laughs) yeah is that funny that i say that well it's funny that you say that actually because that that was what i ended up discovering for my home (laughs) okay well we'll get to you in a second slacker it's all Um, about me (laughs) so for those who aren't familiar atypical is a a netflix series about uh, sam gardner is the protagonist played by keir gilchrist and he's on the autism spectrum and it's really important to note right out of the gate that it is not an own voices story the creator does not have autism and there has been a lot of pushback against the show from the autistic community because there are lots of autistic writers and Mm -hmm. aspiring showrunners and actors and like folks who would like the chance to tell this story from perhaps a more authentic perspective and a couple of hashtags if you're interested in following those conversations if you search atypical on twitter but you use hashtag actually autistic you'll get people who have autism responding to the show So the first season involved no autistic actors at all. 
And what they've tried to do in the second season is fold in some actually autistic actors playing actually autistic characters, as well as apparently some writers. I don't know the backgrounds of the writers well enough to comment on it. And what I'm seeing online in the reviews is that the inclusion of these characters is welcome on the one hand, and it's good to see autistic actors getting a role in a show that's ostensibly about their community, but that they are still marginal characters. They're all still side characters. Right. And the flip side is that while the show is maybe making a stronger effort in terms of representation, the actual reviews of the show have gotten worse in the second season because the focus has shifted and some of the sort of the intense focus on the family dynamic has been lost a little bit. That's probably not being construed as entertaining or as entertaining. I think that has a lot to do with it. So he's attending this support group this season with his guidance counselor, who's played by Casey Wilson from Happy Endings, and she's fantastic in the role. Mm -hmm. And the introduction of those um, autistic actors, I think, lends a lot of strength to those scenes and those interactions. And I actually think, like, Kira Gilchrist is upping his game in terms of his presentation as a person with autism. Anyway, all this to say, I actually do think the show is worth checking out, but I think that it's also worth checking out alongside the criticisms that are really easy to find online. And I think it's important to keep thinking through, you know, can we get to the point where we have accurate representation and entertainment? Like, can those things coexist? And Mm -hmm. which need is more important, right, ultimately? Anyway, so I've just been thinking about it a lot because I like when you watch a show that you know so many people who are part of the community being represented have a problem with, like, I feel genuine, like, guilt because I'm supporting a property that people within the, that community are saying, like, hey, this doesn't speak for us and we don't like it. Yeah. So I think it's really important to read the criticism alongside, but I, I, actually, I do think the show is worth checking out. If not nothing else, the marriage between Michael Rapaport and Jennifer Jason Lee is probably one of my favorite marriages on TV right now. Uh, it's so rare to see a good, genuine marriage on TV as well. Oh, no, it's a bad marriage. But <laughs> but their experiences... Well, maybe true to life, then. Well, their experiences within the marriage just seem so, I don't know, authentic. Like, they're sort of stuck, to a certain extent, in this marriage because they are the support network for Sam. And the people they are within that context is... Uh, I don't know, they're just some beautiful moments of sort of human frailty. But yeah, no, not a good marriage. Sorry, don't don't get me wrong. Okay, <laughs> good to know. <laughs> yeah. All right, share your news there, slacker. Okay, well, before I get into mine, if you're looking for a better depiction that's still entertaining, I will direct you to an ABC family, in quotation marks, because all of the ABC comedies are family-oriented. It's one called Speechless. Oh, I haven't even heard about this. Yeah, it's in its third season right now. It made waves when it debuted because it has Minnie Driver as the mom of a special needs son. He's in a wheelchair, and I can't remember what he has, which makes me terrible, but he he has to use like a viewfinder uh, tablet, and he has an aide who helps him. But uh, the series is genuinely hilarious the Mm. actor himself is he has what the character that he plays has and he's wonderful he's so 
funny and genuine. The relationship that he has with Minnie Driver as the mom is lovely. She's completely overbearing and a little bit ridiculous the lengths that she'll go to help accommodate him and the way that she champions him. But she also smothers him and doesn't let him to be able and do everything. So a lot of the the tension or the conflict comes from them trying to navigate relatively innocuous things. Like there's an episode in the first season where his high school doesn't have a ramp and then they try to build a new one but it's around the back in down an alleyway that has garbage in it and it's just completely unacceptable so it's really good at highlighting the things that those of us who don't have disabilities take for granted but doing it in a way that is warm and genuine and honestly just so funny my husband brian and i cry every single episode (laughs) because it just knows exactly how to hit you in the feels and i can't recommend the show enough Oh, awesome. Okay, good to know. Thank you. I'll check it out. So then my homework piece. (laughs) Uh, Welcome back to Brenna's Library Corner. (laughs) So in the aftermath of the holidays and doing our holiday show, I was inclined to go back and check out something else that I had seen on the list that had caught my attention. So I haven't started to read it. It just came in off my holds list. It's called The Afterlife of Holly Chase. Ooh. And it is a Christmas-themed, very Ebenezer Scrooge-inspired tale. So the logline is, After being visited by three ghosts on Christmas Eve, Holly Chase chooses not to mend her spoiled ways, (laughs) and upon her death, discovers her selfishness has caused her to work for eternity as a ghost of Christmas past. I'm I'm in love. I'm in love. This concept is so good. Yes. Because I love the fact that it's... It sounds like it's the character of Sam from Before I Fall and then having to deal with the aftermath of still not being a good person, but then (laughs) clearly having to learn from those mistakes and then doing right by others. I just Googled it and the first thing that came up was somebody calling it Before I Fall meets Bah Humbug. Yes. Doesn't that sound amazing? (laughs) It does. I'm putting it on my hold list right now. Okay. So that is our homework corner. Uh Uh-huh. And are we now ready to dive into Scott Pilgrim? We are. We're going to be talking about Scott Pilgrim. We actually read all six volumes of the comic uh, in preparation for watching the film. And uh, so I'm going to start us off by sort of contextualizing the comic a little bit, shall I? Mm -hmm. Please do. And I will... uh, I got to say, my my journey with the Scott Pilgrim series is a long one. I've been... Would you say torturous? (laughs) Well, it's interesting. I was thinking today about how much my relationship to it as a property has changed. I used to really unambiguously love it, and I don't as much anymore, but I still think it's a really interesting text to talk about. I think we're going to have a lot to say today. Yes. Full full disclosure, I have published two scholarly articles on the Scott Pilgrim series, and I teach it. So feel free to uh, tell me to shut up if I get overly verbose on this, Joe. (laughs) Whereas I was going to say, maybe we should just link to that in the show notes. (laughs) (laughs) We could totally do that, except that one is in a book that costs like $200, and the other one is behind a paywall. Yay, academic publishing. (laughs) This is why I got out of it. Seriously. So the Scott Pilgrim series. It's six volumes. They were originally published in sort of a digest size black and white style. They've since been colorized. It tells the story of Scott Pilgrim. He's a slacker dude, part-time musician, doesn't really have a job, kind of freeloads off his friends, occasionally Mm -hmm. his family, and he falls in love with a 
girl named Ramona who has moved to Toronto from America. And just America. Just America. New York and then something else before that's ambiguous. Yeah. And what he finds out when he falls in love with her is that in order to be with her, he must defeat her seven evil exes. Not uh, ex-boyfriends. Although in the first volume, it's ex-boyfriends because I don't think O'Malley had thought all the way through the series yet. But yes, it's her seven, his, her seven evil exes that he must defeat. So it's a quest narrative. Scott Pilgrim is on this quest, ostensibly to win the hand of Ramona. But what really happens over the course of the narrative is Scott has to confront the guy he is. What we realize as the narrative progresses is that Scott tells himself and everyone else a lot of lies about who he is. Mm -hmm. Um, He spends a lot of time convincing himself that he is a nice guy. And we spend a lot of the narrative figuring out that that's really, really not the case. And that in fact, he sees himself as the person who has his heart broken constantly. But in reality, he has been the person causing harm to people around him for quite some time. Mm-hmm. It's almost like an unreliable narrator, right? Yeah, he's totally an unreliable narrator. What's nice about the comic book format is that because it's a comic book, we don't just have Scott's perspective. And something I really realize every time I go back and reread is constantly Scott's not niceness is being reinforced for us from the first volume. There are sort of clues that past relationships have ended badly, that situations in which he has positioned himself as the hero are really... Really, he was not heroic at all. Mm -hmm. Um, By the end of the series, Scott has been forced to come to terms with the truth, really, of who he is. And in doing so, he's able to move on. And so he and Ramona pursue a relationship at the end of the text, not based on this false sense of who he is or what he perceives romance to be, but they're both forced to look at themselves and their own experiences a little bit more authentically before they actually have their romance come together yeah Yeah. and so it was published in volumes as comics are the first volume was published in 2004 and the final volume came out in 2010 uh, and then the colorized versions followed from 2012 to 2015 so yeah i mean that's in a nutshell that's the plot it's a good succinct (laughs) encapsulation yeah yeah i think There's a lot of other stuff going on that we'll get into. When I teach the comic, I talk a lot about how Canadian identity is represented, as I don't think I said this, but it's a Canadian comic. Brian Lee O'Malley is Canadian, and it's set in Toronto, and Toronto is very much a set piece in Mm -hmm. the series. And the fact that Scott is Canadian and is so sort of taken with Ramona's Americanness is something that I reflect a lot reflect on with my students when I teach this in the Canadian lit class I think the interesting thing sorry that's that Brian Lee O'Malley is doing in the comic is Scott's version of himself is kind of a lot like the maple washed version of Canadian identity that a lot of us carry around this idea that like no we're the nice guys while we're selling arms to Saudi Arabia and such right (laughs) and I think there's 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 a real parallel a real strong parallel between the idea of who Scott thinks he is and the constant reinforcement that this text is like set in Canada and a sort of representation of like Canadian niceness and maybe the darkness that actually kind of underlies it. But we can dig more into that in a bit. Mm-hmm. But I want to ask you a question, Joe. Okay. As our resident gay male. 
what? <laughs> Who told um, you? <laughs> um, so when I teach it now, like I haven't read the whole series in a long time because I usually just teach volume one. Which is probably good, probably yeah. recommended, to be it's, honest. I think it's the strongest volume for sure. And it does the most with sort of nationhood and identity. So it's the most useful to me in the classroom. But reading the series as a whole, I was struck... I want you to talk about representation as a reader because I'm just going to put it out there. In your experience of reading this text was the casual homophobia. Like where did that fall on a scale of (laughs) early friends episode to Fox News special? Like where did the, for you? Yeah. Let me just adjust my tie and (laughs) climb up onto this here soapbox. (laughs) It's really tricky. I find, so one thing's that, people who listen to this podcast may or may not know is that not only am I gay, but I I do often write about queer issues in cinema. So my other podcast, which is probably available at this point, maybe, concerns queer horror films. So I'm not an expert by any measure, but I do bring my own experience as a gay male to some of the perspectives that I'm considering as I'm reading these books, as I'm looking at these movies. And you're you're absolutely right. Like, I, I appreciate that you call it casual homophobia because I don't think that there's ill will intended on Leo Malley's behalf, but particularly reading six volumes of this in a very short amount of time, I was very struck by how frustratingly casual and dismissive the homophobia is so obviously if people have read the text or if they've seen the film they'll know that there's a very predominant queer character wallace wells who plays scott's roommate he's he's more than scott's roommate he's like scott can't function in society without wallace wallace pays his bills wallace like minds him wallace reminds him to be like a decent effing human being and break up with his girlfriend he's clearly about to cheat on yeah so he's almost the voice of reason he represents an absent parental figure i think so even though you do meet scott's parents very briefly in the comics it seems clear that there's a disconnect between them and then they're completely absent from the film and actually i meant to say this off the top but i want to interject it here Mm -hmm. that i think probably more truly the series is NA as opposed to YA, so it qualifies more as like a new adult series. The film is definitely categorized everywhere you look as a young adult film, but the series is not strictly interested in young adult themes. It's really interested in this sort of like, I'm entering my 20s and I don't know what to do with my life sort of idea that NA encapsulates more accurately. Yeah, that's a good point, because I I did realize as I was looking through it, I'm like, oh, these people are mostly in their early 20s even though many of them do act like teenagers in the way that they're still getting their lives together and they're, in a way, coming of age. My students literally always ask, is Scott seriously supposed to be 23? <laughs> yeah, because he acts like about a 13 or a 14-year-old boy. Absolutely. And the, the, there is an undercurrent here of like a protracted, delayed adolescence, which is why it feels very much like a YA title, even as you read. Yeah, I think if this was actually written nowadays, Scott would be living in his parents' basement. Totally. But to come back to the question, it's frustrating. So Wallace, as a queer character, he's constantly referred to as Scott's gay roommate or super gay roommate. It's not necessarily, I don't think it's a negative depiction, but the way that 
queerness is tossed around throughout the series is inherently problematic because it's used as a labeling device. Mm -hmm. And then the comic, I think, has one particularly really vulgar instance in which Scott spies on... So there's a a girl drummer in his band, Sex Ma Bomb, named Kim. And at a party, he sees her drunkenly making out with the underage girlfriend that he is initially dating before he falls in love with Ramona, Knives Chow. And he essentially turns it into a masturbatory fantasy in Mm -hmm. which it's like lesbians like it's like he's discovered the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow and it's it's pretty gross it's pretty gross throughout like even you know when he can't fight the woman ex of ramona because he's like oh i can't punch a girl but he's like she says that she had this bisexual phase and he's like, you had a sexy phase. Mm-hmm. So it's com- it's always framed through the lens of male desire and straight male, heterosexual male desire. The whole, te- I mean, every character in the text is framed through that lens. Mm-hmm. I also found it really striking this time through that with the exception of Stephen Stills, who sort of comes out in volume five in a fairly unceremonious manner. Yes, the lead singer of the Sex Mabobs. Yeah, the gay characters other than Stephen are like, there is only one way to be gay in the Scott Pilgrim universe. It's to be a total bitch, right? Yeah. Super gay. <laughs> not right? it's, it's like a whole sort of like, I mean, the most kind of stereotypical 90s kind of queen representation of male homosexuality and the weird thing is there are multiple gay dudes in the text who all present that way yes they're flamboyant they're effeminate they all get called bitch by other characters yeah to be honest it it smacks of really uninformed writing by a very self-identifying heterosexual male Mm -hmm. who thinks that he's maybe being progressive by including queer characters, but then it's essentially what I did at the top of this podcast. Oh, I didn't do my homework. I just kind of ad-libbed it. <laughs> well, that's the thing. And when I teach this text, we spend a lot of time talking about Wallace Wells and the ways in which he is simultaneously like the moral center of volume one, but also a stereotype who never gets to be fully realized as a character. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so anyway, I, I really wanted you to talk about that because I also think it, it's a problem throughout the series of sort of flat representations. Yes. Um, like Ramona is a classic Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Oh, to a T. So we talked about this concept before, I think. Yes, we introduced it back in the very first chapter when we talked about the perks of being a wallflower. Oh yeah, of course we did. So it's this idea of a female character who is sort of quirky and sweet and exists only for the male protagonist to progress on his identity quest. Mm-hmm. And Ram- Ramona is that so much so that like, <laughs> I mean, she, in a way that it feels like O'Malley, if he had pushed it a little bit further, could have been making a really interesting comment on that representation of women the way Ramona just like literally disappears from scenes in which she is not the center Mm -hmm. and of course the joke is that she's disappearing into the substream but it's also speaking volumes about the fact that essentially your leading lady vanishes from scenes like if Scott's eyes aren't on her she's not there she's not there and so and she doesn't exist without Scott's attraction to her and Mm -hmm. 
Unfortunately, I just don't think at this stage of his career, O'Malley was good enough at writing women to do either Ramona or Kim or Knives justice. What's interesting is that the, uh, this series is followed up by Seconds, which is a long-form graphic novel that O'Malley did after. And it's quite a beautiful representation of female identity. It's a woman-centered story, a sort of slightly older coming of age, this kind of sense of kind of failing in the career that you've chosen or being scared to progress in the career that you've chosen. And it's actually quite beautiful. And the text that came before the Scott Pilgrim series, Lost at Sea, is a really beautiful representation of a young woman struggling with depression and probably PTSD after like a sexual assault or a sexual event. Hmm. And yet... (laughs) In Scott Pilgrim, it's a disaster. It is a complete disaster. So, like, I don't, I, I understand that the project of Scott Pilgrim is something very different, and there's a level at which it is maybe the best and worst example of of a fan service series, right? Like, it exists to please and delight sort of nerdy boys who have felt, you know, that culture is not representative of their interests. Well, here's a series where every single in-joke is going to be representative of your interests. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because, so when I was doing some research for this, I actually tracked down an interview with him, Brian Lee O'Malley. I gather it was just before the colorized versions were coming out. So he did an interview and he talked about how Lost at Sea garnered him really bad reviews from among his friend base because they felt that it wasn't representative of his fun side. So he did Scott Pilgrim to be fun. Almost, I think, flippantly, he thought, well, this will be something that's more enjoyable for people to read. And the fact that you said fan service just, I think, really nails it on the head. This is giving teenage boys or young young adult men the kind of nostalgia factor that we're going to see I play into things like Ready Player One, if mm-hmm. heaven forbid we ever end up getting to it. But that kind of, you know, video game culture where you are the hero, there is that damsel in distress, and what's standing in your way is a series of adventure quests, and the people who exist exist to help you, or they are opponents to level up. Yes. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. And it's interesting because Scott Pilgrim has become the centerpiece of his career. And I think, I mean, if you follow his uh, Twitter account, he's quite snarky about Scott Pilgrim fans and their desire to see him continue to create more Scott Pilgrim stuff. He had a tweet that was like, I guess there could probably be more Scott Pilgrim. And in the next 30 seconds, this tweet is going to be on Wikipedia. And like, and it was <laughs> like, yeah, he's, I always get the sense that he, not that he has any regrets about Scott Pilgrim, it obviously made him incredibly successful, but the work of Lost at Sea and Seconds, I suspect is more representative of the artist he perceives himself to be. Right. But he's trapped in the populist piece that really got everybody's attention. Yeah, exactly. He's working now on a series called Snot Girl, which I have to confess that I haven't picked up because the title grosses me out so profoundly. <laughs> I was going to say, that's not a catchy title. But... It's not a catchy title. And uh, my my students, I have a student this term who's like, you have to read it. It's so good. And I believe her because she's got great taste in everything. Everything else she's recommended to me has been really good, but I just can't get past the title. Snot Girl. Ugh. Fair enough. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'll confess that I think out of all of the works that we've discussed on the podcast so far, 
with the exception of Before I Fall, because I found it just very juvenile and ill-conceived, this was actually the hardest read for me. Mm. Just because I found, like, I, I know, to a certain extent, I think I know what he's doing. Like, when you read the volumes, it's very clear that Scott is your hero, but it's hero in quotation marks, and he is flawed, and he has a lot of growing up to do, and that's that's inherently the point of the entire text. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's aggressively unpleasant to have to spend so much time with a character who is so unaware and so casually dismissive of the really awful things that he is doing to people. Like, Sam in Before I Fall is a mean girl and she's a bitch, but she knows it in a way. She knows she's doing wrong. Whereas Scott is very much the hero of his own text. And even if there's meant to be criticism that he is not being a nice guy at the end of the day that opening text box literally says scott pilgrim and then his designation is hero Mm -hmm. so whether or not brian leo madley intends it he is being presented as the quote-unquote hero of this tale despite the fact that he's a terrible person the book that i want to read is this entire six volumes from kim's perspective Yes, Kim is a fascinating character. And I was actually really happy that we ended up reading all six volumes. Yeah, because you learn way more about her, hey? Yes. And I love her wilderness tour. And I think actually the conversation that she and Scott have in that section, there's so much depth and character development. And it happens in a very short amount of time. But it's really fulfilling and gratifying as a reader. So I'm really happy that we actually got to that. Yeah, I agree completely. I I really love Kim Pine. I think she's fascinating. And I think in the relationship with Kim Pine, but also in recognizing the harm he's caused to knives, that's where his growth occurs. Mm -hmm. It doesn't happen with Ramona, and it certainly doesn't happen through the goofy battles. And I just feel like if O'Malley had pushed a little bit harder, he could have made a really interesting comment on masculinity and tropes of masculinity and battle and heteronormative patriarchy but he doesn't he just doesn't push it and i know he's capable of it because i've read lost at sea and i've read seconds and that's what's frustrating to me about going back to this series now yeah so having not read those other texts and looking at this as a complete story arc so i don't know what it would have been like to have read it in its single uh, volume version well especially because they're years and years apart right yeah i mean This is a substantial amount of work, and Mm -hmm. this is, I mean, it's obvious why people have gravitated and hold it up as his most significant piece of work, because it, I mean, that is a chunk of time that he spent with these characters. I mean, six years just in publication, so that's not even like whatever time went into it previously, and that's not including like going back to create the color versions. So yeah, it's a substantial amount of time. Yeah, but just as as a, a synthesis, as a complete whole, I didn't leave with a great sense of him as, no, a, as a creator in terms of his capacity for it it felt like a very shallow observation about masculinity and and how that can inform or cripple romantic and friendship relationships like i have no desire to read his other texts if you if you hadn't told me that they were any good i wouldn't i would absolutely not seek them out after this yeah, I can totally see that. And I think, too, I have to say that I don't think the texts have aged well. Going back and reading them, I mean, as I say, the casual homophobia slapped me in the face in a way that I, I don't think it would have in 2009, 
No. I just I don't think it would have. For, that's which is my own like <laughs> growth as a human, but I think it's also our social growth. The other mm-hmm. thing is like prolific use of the R word. Yeah, which I, I picked that up too. I I don't even remember that from my first read through, which again I think is a sign of how society is shifting in terms of what we deem to be like appropriate language to use casually. And there is a lot about the text that is ephemeral in a positive way like Mm -hmm. so douglas copeland has this theory about canadian identity that canadian identity is rooted in ephemera he calls it the secret handshakes of canadianness so it's like (laughs) the fact that like you could open a cupboard in a kitchen in any like whether it's a major urban center or in the middle of nowhere and you're going to find a bunch of things with like the yellow no-name label right and like every canadian has those things in their cupboards and Copeland's point is that in the absence of any sort of major effort to nation build, this is where we root Canadian identity in this ephemera. And um, for people listening outside of Canada, Canadians do not know who we are. No, we really. Even don't. though we also have very strong opinions about who we are, <laughs> we know we're not America. That's the most important thing. Yes. Um, but I think O'Malley does a really interesting job of building the world like building Toronto and making it so that there is this register at which this register upon which you read the comic if you are Canadian where you notice things like the Ontario Trillium on Scotch shirt and the CBC logo and the names of like Thrush Hermit and Plumtree in these 90s bands and mm-hmm. there's a Zeller's um, receipt in Ramona's drawer and they eat at Pizza Pizza and it's all of these like very ephemeral but very canadian references yeah the first time i gave a conference paper on this series um my colleague peter and i gave a conference paper in in leeds in the uk at the big comics forum which is the big comics conference over there and our paper was called an innocent at home scott pilgrim's multicultural context so O'Malley's doing something really interesting with the way violence is often visited against the Asian Canadian characters in the text. Yeah. And so we talked about that at this conference and the first question we got from the audience was, um, so this book is Canadian? And we're looking at the person like, yeah. it's aggressively How Canadian? Not know? And then, <laughs> But it's all through this sort of secret handshake, like ephemeral stuff. So like there are levels at which O'Malley is doing something really interesting, but the project as a whole hasn't aged well. And unfortunately where it really counts in terms of showing that growth for Scott and making us believe that this text could be something bigger in terms of discussions of masculinity and identity, we just never get there. Yeah. And maybe now's a good time to introduce the film into the discussion because I feel like one of the most interesting things is the fact that the comic series had not yet wrapped up at the time that the film had gone into production. So they ended up in a way, speaking to each other, having to negotiate some of the tension between the mm-hmm. two media. So we'll quickly do our usual thing where we play the trailer. Hey, what's up? I'll leave you alone forever now. You know this one girl with hair like this? Yes, that's Ramona Flowers. She's out of your league. You know her? Tell me now. She just moved here, got a job at Amazon. I have to order something really cool. Scott, are you waiting for the package you just ordered? Maybe. 
Scott Pilgrim. Hi, I was thinking about asking you out, but then I realized how stupid that would be. That's okay. You should just sign for this, all right? So do you want to go out sometime? I say yes, will you sign for your damn package? So, yeah, 8 o'clock? Come to this Battle of the Bands thing. You have a band? Yeah, we're terrible. email explaining the situation? I skimmed it. Mm-mm. What was that all about? If we're gonna date, you may have to defeat my seven evil exes. So what you're saying is we are dating? I guess. Does that mean we can make out? Sure. Okay. So the film was made in 2010 by British director Edgar Wright, and he's quite a prolific, well-known director of really high-octane, visually kinetic properties. So he's broken out since this film with things like Baby Driver, which is essentially a car chase disguised as a film. And in a way, his version of Scott Pilgrim versus the world is a video game disguised as a film. But intriguingly, it has a number of the same, and this is my interpretation, feel free to correct me if you had a different vision. To me, it embodies a lot of the same problems as the source material, but it does other things Generically speaking, it does certain things really well. Like I think it in adapting it into a live action, it actually erases some of the problems, particularly with regard to the casting. And then it just absolutely fumbles oh the ending. Oh my god, yes. We'll talk about the ending for sure. But I think that in terms of what this film gets right, this is the best visual adaptation of a comic, I would say, ever. Ever. <laughs> Yeah, it's amazing. Like, in terms of capturing the the tone, the atmosphere, and literally just transposing images from a graphic novel onto a visual on a screen, it's basically this, and I would say maybe Alan Moore's Watchmen, which was adapted by Zack Snyder. That's right. And um, I hated that, but anyway. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, don't worry, it's not YA. We don't have to cover it. Yay. Um, the, particularly for me, it's the use of border and gutter, which if yeah. you're not a comic reader, the borders, the borders are obviously the borders of the frames, but the gutter is that space between the frames. O'Malley does a lot of very interesting things with borders and gutters in the comic in terms of like which characters have the power to transgress border and why. Mm-hmm. Um, for more on this, you can read my article, Border Studies in the Gutter in Canadian Literature. Stop pimping yourself out. <laughs> have you no shame, woman? Imagine if it meant anything, if anybody read my scholarly articles. Anyway, but what he's doing something really interesting in the comic and it gets represented visually so effectively by Edgar Wright. Like, I feel like if any director understands what a comic is and what that medium offers, it's Edgar Wright. And he Mm -hmm. just, like, he cranks it to the max. And so it's a pleasure to watch this film. It's one of my favorite films visually, like, of all time. I really love the visuals. Well, because I love comics, right? And so for me to see that represented on screen in a way that is so effective and makes such productive use of the medium that i love is really like it's a rewarding watch visually Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
yes, that's yeah. a good caveat uh, <laughs> to put on it. But you're absolutely right. I mean, I love graphic novels. Like, of all the things that I read, I, I read predominantly graphic novels. And to me, the most effective graphic novels are the ones that make good use of borders and gutters. And they have that playful sense of how is a page constructed and how visually you can move action and characters and even dialogue a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I was really taken with this time when I watched the film was the really creative use of split screens in conveying different kind of action sequences because typically that's a good way to establish conflict in films so if you see them in split screens in regular films it's either to convey that events are happening in different places at the same time or that these characters are connected in some way so they're either complementary or they're going to come into conflict in one another Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah and the film just it really makes good use of that, particularly during the fight scenes. But even things like the lettering, the way that scenes transition so that you're getting the sense that time is moving. So things like telephone calls and then suddenly people are in different locations and that kind of stuff. It, it helps to keep the film moving along and feeling very alive and uh, kinesthetic. Yes, that's a good word for it. And it's really effective in terms of keeping the action moving because I think one place where the comic series falls down is like a lot of time passes <laughs> over mm, the course of the comic. Time over is, a year, right? Yeah, it's over a year. And time is important because part of the sort of like breakdown that Scott Pilgrim is in the middle of when we meet him relates to him just not really having like a grasp of the passage of time and so I think for Wright to use time so playfully and effectively in the film makes a lot of thematic sense yeah because the events in the film I looked it up and a bunch of different people suggested that this takes place over the course of about a week to a week and a half in the film (laughs) yeah yeah he condenses the time a lot Now, I would say, actually, one of the things that doesn't work out so well for the film is in condensing that time frame, the film can also feel exhausting, particularly (laughs) as you move into the climax. So the the thing that I noticed on the rewatch this time around was how much I did not want to see the base battle between the Sexma Bomb and the twins mm. at the the big Gideon pre-showdown club. Mm-hmm. I actually didn't find the pacing of it very well constructed in the books either, but at least it felt like it was progressing a bit more naturally. Whereas here, it was just kind of like, who are these people? Why do we have to see them? Oh, okay, they're just battling with dragons and pyrotechnics. Yeah, I think it's the weakest of the fight scenes, but it's the weakest of the fight scenes in the books too, because we never hear about the emotional backstory there. They're just like, (laughs) oh crap, we need two more fights. (laughs) Yeah. And again, this this weird (laughs) condemnation maybe of female sexuality and the idea that she dated twins at the same time. Oh yeah, exactly. And like, I mean, the... (laughs) The entire construct is a giant slut-shaming, right? I mean, ultimately, it's like this constant anxiety about Ramona's sexual past mm-hmm. made manifest on the screen. Well, she changes the her hair, Brenna. She changes her <laughs> hair color. What does it mean? <laughs> I do want to say that I think I like Michael Sarah as Scott Pilgrim. Like, I think it's a good casting choice. When it, it is. When yeah. it was announced, most of my friends who were big Scott Pilgrim fans were really, really pissed off because they all hated Michael Sarah. <laughs> and people were like, but we don't want to think of Scott Pilgrim as 
a whiny slacker loser boy like Michael Sarah, but he is. And I think So they didn't understand what the point of the comics were? <laughs> well, I just think it's really important to not make Scott into oh There's the train. <laughs> So I think that it's important to not, like, sex up Scott Pilgrim, right? Like, he has to be a Michael Sarah type. He has to be... There's something about Scott Pilgrim where you're constantly wondering, like, why has this loser dude managed to ruin so many women's lives? How is that even mm-hmm. possible? He is a giant loser. And that... It would have been really easy to lose that in casting because that's so often where these kinds of stories go off the rails in the film version. So I think Michael Sarah was a really good choice. And I think the casting in general is really good. Like I like all of the choices. None of them feel particularly like surprising or shocking or odd to me. No, that was one of the things I was trying to, <laughs> I was very poorly uh, <laughs> trying to communicate back when we first transitioned to the film was I think a lot of the material, some of the problematic things in the book is, I guess, easier to swallow Mm. in the film because the actors are incredibly charismatic. I'm just looking at the list. It's such a likable cast. It's Brie Larson and Anna Kendrick and Mae Whitman and Chris Evans and Aubrey Plaza and Mary Elizabeth Winstead and Kieran Culkin. Like these are all people who doesn't love all of these people. Exactly. So even if they're not always playing fully fleshed out characters or likable people, they carry a lot of goodwill and likability as actors. And again, what struck me on the rewatch was just how... I had forgotten that so many of these people were in this film. So every time they showed up, I was like, oh, right. <laughs> you know, I, I completely forgot that it was Alison Pill or that it was Aubrey Plaza. And because I think it, some of these people have gone on to bigger and better things. So it reflects well on them. But even the people who maybe haven't blossomed in the aftermath, it's only been eight years, the people who were cast, they just they have that inherent likability to them. They really do. They're a nice friend group. It's kind of like, if you guys didn't hang out with Scott, I would hang out with all of you. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, So maybe let's talk about the end of the film. What doesn't work for you? So the last volume, as you alluded, Joe, the last volume was written after the film was in production. And so there's very little from volume six that makes it into the film in any meaningful way. And... It's a shame because the scene with the nega Scott, which is like straight out of video game lore, but mm-hmm. this idea of having to fight the evil version of your character at some point, within the thematic world of the comic, it's the thematic conclusion to Scott's quest to sort of remake himself. He has to come to terms with the asshole that he has been. And in so doing, he's able to sort of repair his sense of self and repair his relationships with the people around him. It's not perfect in the books, but boy, howdy, is it garbage in the movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, To be honest, I had completely forgotten it was in there until it shows up. And it's such an afterthought that I couldn't even believe that they bothered to keep it. Like, why, why even bother to introduce it? I don't understand it at all. So if in the film version, this important like climactic moment of growth character the nega scott is introduced right at the end of the film 
and you don't see the battle between him and Scott, and then it cuts to them leaving the building together, making brunch plans, and it turns out Nega Scott's actually a really great guy, which is the opposite of the point of Scott coming to terms with Nega Scott. The point mm-hmm. is not for Scott to embrace Nega Scott, it's for Scott to defeat Nega Scott. <laughs> I read something about why it was changed from the book, and the answer was that in the book, it's too obvious that that, of course, would be the purpose of Negascott and that it wouldn't play out as well in the film, because that's what you would be expecting him to have to do. Well, and I admit the first time, like when I first saw the film in theaters before I had read volume six, I liked the gag. Like the gag was funny to me. Like, oh my God, he meets Negascott. It's going to be a climactic battle. Oh, they're going for brunch. Ha 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 ha. Mm -hmm. But once you've read the whole series and you've thought through all the problems with the representations of masculinity that we've discussed, it's like, oh, you had this opportunity to do this one thing and you totally turned it into a joke instead. Yeah. I mean, that was disappointing, but it didn't bother me quite as much as some of the other things that get changed in the ending. The thing that really, really did not work for me was Knives having such an integral part in the final defeat of Gideon in the film. And even the fact that she attacks Ramona in the first go-around before Scott is killed and then he comes back after his one-up life. So that is a scene that happens much earlier in the books. It happens in the Toronto Reference Library when Knives attacks Ramona. They have a fight. Ramona doesn't really understand who Knives is at that point, which I imagine is maybe one of the reasons that they took it out. But then to move it to the end of the film essentially suggests that Knives herself has not progressed or grown at all throughout the entire movie and that she still blames Ramona for what has happened between her and Scott, which essentially eliminates Knives' entire character arc. Well, and then at the end of the film, though, like, what, three and a half minutes after that happens in the film, she and Ramona are, like, standing outside together and they're, they're, they're cool. It's all, mm-hmm. it's all cool. And Knives is like, go after her. And you're like, wait, what? But you were just really... Okay. What? You were trying to kill her three minutes ago. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that didn't work for me. And then, of course, the fact that obviously it's a callback to when Scott and Knives are playing the kind of dance dance revolution style thing. That's a nice visual callback. But to me, it also it doesn't make any sense for Knives to be involved in the final battle with Gideon. And part of that, I think, is because you're not getting insight into the way that Gideon controls Ramona. You know, she, in the film, has her little chip in the back of her neck, but you don't really get any sense of what that means. And in the book, obviously, there's a way bigger backstory to it that they had to get rid of. Yeah, and in the books, Knives has become part of the friend group which never happens in the film. So Mm -hmm. in the book, it makes sense that she is invested in what happens to these people. In the movie, she's just like, she's a stalker. She's a stalker. She's a stalker. She's a stalker. Oh, now she's fighting Ramona. Oh, now she's fighting Gideon. Oh, now she's cool with everything. Like, poor Mm -hmm. knives. She gets no, not even no character arc, no coherence. No. And it, it feels as though it was a creative decision made to elevate the stakes of mm-hmm. the final battle. You know, let's not just have one battle against one villain. Let's have multiple battles. But also this way we can, you know, get a little bit more girl fight into oh, totally. the proceedings. And that also brings me back to one other big change that they made in the movie which is that Ramona actually gets involved in one of the fights and so instead of fighting Envy as she does in the book because 
Envy is effectively defanged and almost entirely removed from the movie. Mm-hmm. We have Ramona fighting her her female ex. Yes. And that really gross scene where she essentially dispatches her by orgasm? Yep. Yep. Which is really icky as an adult. I remember finding it mildly amusing. I mean, I wasn't a teenager, but when I was not looking at this critically, I mm-hmm. thought, oh, that's kind of funny. And now I'm just like, that's disgusting. Yeah. Like, it's not clever. It's gross. Yeah, it's super gross. And it's it's particularly uncomfortable because it's all framed around this idea of, like, Scott can't hit a girl and, like, which characters do and don't, quote unquote, hit girls uh, mm-hmm. in the text. And this notion of, like... You know, Scott's like, well, am I a pussy because I won't punch a chick? And it's like, who is this written for? Yeah. Dude bros. <laughs> yeah, dude bros. It feels very dude bros in those moments. Yeah. But it's it's very odd because at the end of the day, I can understand very easily what both texts are trying to accomplish. And I think they're actually doing them in mostly successful ways. I think the film... It's so visually dynamic. It's got so much energy and it's so visually captivating. And the book is actually doing a good job of showcasing how much of a dick Scott Mm -hmm. is and it charts his progression. But at the same time, they're both really flawed in some key fundamental ways that make them inherently very problematic. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Completely agreed. But I feel like we're going to get a bunch of people getting really mad at us for being like, well, you just don't, you know, understand this. Like when I was looking up criticisms, because I I was having difficulty with the homophobia and the casual misogyny of the books. So when I put in reviews of like misogyny or homophobia in the books into the Google, it was a lot of women writing Mm -hmm. about these issues. And then men, to be honest, from what I could gather of the images, white and I'm presuming straight men, Mm -hmm. responding and basically tearing women down, being like, you just don't understand. Like the definition of mansplaining from back in 2010. Yeah, and I think that the lack of critical reflection on the series as a whole comes back to what I was saying before about how quickly this 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 text seems to have aged like it's only 10 we're only 10 years out you know or maybe 15 from the first volumes and it feels a million years ago and i Mm -hmm. think the the critical response would have been very different if this had come out a decade later yeah it's interesting because i remember so i went back and listened to our very first sort of introductory episode uh over the holidays And we talked about how this was one of the things that we wanted to consider as we move forward with this as a bit of a project. We wanted to take a look at these texts in a bit of a revisionist sense and see, you know, okay, this was made in this time period. What has happened in the time past? And how has that changed the interpretation of the text? And to me, this is actually very much one of those, even 2010 Mm -hmm. is ages ago. Mm -hmm. And it's only eight to nine years. Mm -hmm. Especially when we think about issues of representation, of how we tell stories, of what we expect our stories to be capable of doing. The gulf in the last 10 years is massive. Just massive. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess we're sort of, I think, are we done? I feel like we're done. I think we're done. To be honest, I think like we could talk about this for quite a bit longer, but at this point... (laughs) Let's put a capper on it. Um, I do have a YA bingo, and uh, I have two, actually. Okay, hit me with that YA bingo. Bingo! 
Not a good bingo. My first YA bingo is 90s callback. Mm. References to 90s culture, which I think obviously perks of being a wallflower, we could have had it. But also, I was thinking um, to all the girls I've loved before had some 90s callbacks. So let's throw that on the bingo card. Right. And my very patriotic one for this one is going to be Oh Canada. We talked about foregrounding more Canadian stuff on the podcast. This is our first Canadian text we've talked about. So we have work to do. Um, oh gosh, yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to put Oh Canada on a, the bingo card so we come back to it. Nice. Okay. That's a good reminder of our Mm -hmm. issues. Yeah. Mine is the very obvious manic pixie dream girl. A youp. Yeah. And I don't know. Should we do something about... (laughs) I've got another long one. (laughs) Something about like redemptive arc for buttholes. (laughs) (laughs) How about... Maybe just redemptive arcs. Yeah. Redemptive arcs. Because you know what? Before I fall was a redemptive arc for buttholes too. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm like I I just finished recording for my other podcast which is uh not E for everyone it's E for explicit so I probably would have used more colorful language if I was recording <laughs> on that stream but buttholes seems appropriate <laughs> for the Scott Pilgrim world <laughs> all right well I guess that's it for Scott Pilgrim it feels weird to have moved personally from being in a place of loving this property so profoundly to then being someone who like thinks critically about it for money to to now (laughs) talking about it on a podcast but it was fun thanks for this joe so breno where are we headed to next we are headed to the land of witches and demons and vampires with deborah harkness's discovery of witches Yes, and it's television counterpart, so this is also our first television series, and I'm interested to see how you feel a television adaptation works for a property like this, which you're already reticent to (laughs) dive into, because it has magic and supernatural love affairs. I just want somebody to fall in love with a vampire and not become a complete idiot. Is that too much to ask, Joe? Is it too much? It might be. But we will wait until next week to discover it in a discovery of witches. (gasps) I see what you did there. Yeah, I'm terrible. I apologize. (laughs) So that's it for this week. If you want to yell at us about how wrong we are about Scott Pilgrim, you can find us on Twitter at hashtag HKHSpod. Joe, what's your handle on Twitter? I'm going to get it right this week. It's at B stole my remote as in the letter B stole my remote. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. Don't forget to rate, review us on your podcatcher of choice. We're always thrilled to see the reviews coming in. Fast and furious, right, Joe? Oh, yeah. So many of them. (laughs) So, so many. And until next time, I will see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen.